Well, we've been in a series on healing. And as we've talked about healing, we've talked about Jesus's compassion, his desire to heal. And we've talked about how when Jesus works healing in the New Testament stories, it's always a, a part of a wider orbit. And I want to say wider, not deeper. I think that's really important because especially Christians tend to sort of separate body from soul. And again, the incarnate Christ came and took on a human body. The resurrected Christ says, touch the wounds in my hands and at my side and in my feet. Jesus is showing us an embodied, a fully healed means of what it means to follow after him. And so today, what we want to do is look at some practices. How do we begin to embrace healing in our midst? I have a question for you. What is your favorite self-care practice? And if you get to do this thing today, it's going to be a good day. You can call it out. I mean, Epsom salt bath and and what? Oh, Pac-Man. Or, I mean, I guess those two could merge as well. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful. Anybody else have anything? There it is. There it is. There's the parent. Yes. Sleeping in. Yes, indeed. We have all these ways of caring for ourselves, right? And some of them are actually caring for ourselves and others of them are probably less so. And so how do we begin to embrace the healing that, again, has already been won for us? We talked in the beginning of this series that, that because of what Jesus has done, we are healed against all appearances, against everything that it may seem is going on in our world. We have been given healing. And what we see in the life of Jesus is that time will, in fact, not heal all wounds, but eternity will. That Jesus, because he is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, has given us his presence as a marker of what will be in the future. That there will be a day where there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. That is sure and certain because of what he has done. But just like grace, Dallas Willard says of grace, that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And in many of the same ways, healing is not opposed to effort. But healing is opposed to earning. We have to step into it. Jesus has all of these instructions for healing given throughout the New Testament. He'll tell people to go show themselves to the priest. And then on the way there, they'll find themselves healed. And so in many ways, Jesus has given us things that we can step into to begin to live into the reality of our healing now. And so we want to look at a few of those today. And I think thought about this in the first service, and that's kind of what it worked out. Um, You know, there's like those BuzzFeed lists you can't help but click on that are like just kind of random things. You're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. What happened to that person after they were on that show as a child? Or, you know, what does it mean? What are the best ways to cook a turkey in all the different ways? This may in some ways look a little bit like that, kind of a disjointed list. And that's kind of what I have for you today. So if it's like pastoral senioritis on the eve of a holiday, I beg your forgiveness. But I think today what I invite for you is to look at these different practices, and I have seven for you, and just find one that you maybe want to try on for a while. Again, these are not the things that heal us. These are ways of stepping into the healing that Jesus has uh, secured for us. And as we've talked about healing, it's so important for us too to remember. Healing is about a wider orbit. 
When Jesus heals, he's giving a manifestation of what God wants to do with the whole of our lives. And so with that in mind, we step into seven practices today to step into healing. First, the Psalms. The Psalms are a map of the human soul. They contain the whole range of human emotions. They were the prayer book of Jesus as he walked this earth. They are a gift from God, showing us what it means to live a full life before God. And it's so amazing. I mean, the heart of our God is so kind. Right in the middle of this incredible story of salvation is a prayer book of poetry. Like this is who God is. He's trying to show us this is what it means to be human. He's not just giving us a bunch of rules and regulations. He's saying, this is what it means to be human. These are the things that you actually need to live. And the Psalms are inviting us to both immerse our lives in the salvation story of our God, but also to find our lives within them. I've had different Psalms that define different seasons of my life. You know, one most recent I can think back is the beginning of the pandemic, Psalm 91. If you read that, it's very, very powerful. And it's sort of witness to what God is doing, even in the midst of great turmoil. And Psalm 27 for me was one I just held on to. You know, being a pastor during the pandemic was not at all what I signed up for. Um, digital church was not something that we uh, set out to do as Ecclesia. I'm sitting in my living room, like trying to keep my kids quiet with like snacks and TV. And if you listen back to a lot of those old videos, you can hear random expressions from the other room from my kids. But we're just trying to like hold all this together. And I was like, this is not for me. Psalm 27 just says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I just held on to that with everything that I had. I was like, I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, even as I'm a pastor who can't be around people at this point in time. And I hope that for you, you'll find a psalm that sings in the season that you're in. Because I don't know about you, if you've ever read the psalms, there are times where I'll read a psalm and be like, that's not that's not anything that I'm going through right now. I don't, I don't resonate with that experience at all. But there are times where I read the Psalms and I find one, I'm like, that's it. That's where I find myself with the Lord. And we'll talk a little more about that. But the Psalms give us a way of being human and they offer us the full range of human emotion. For, for instance, Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Are you, are you disturbed? Are you resonating? Like, how good is our God? Right, like deep, deep resonance. But then, in the same psalm, down in verse 19, as you're just stirred with the beauty of our God, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. When we were just in the fearfully, wonderfully made, now we're cursing enemies. They speak of you with evil intent. Do I not hate those who hate you? Doesn't, I mean, doesn't the Bible say don't hate people? Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. It's like we were listening to this like nice folk song or like a slow gospel hymn. And all of a sudden it was like heavy metal interlude. Like what just happened? 
You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, Lord, I know your works full well. Kill the bloodthirsty. You're like, okay. Um, it sounds very jarring. It sounds very sudden, and yet it sounds very human, right? Like we are complex creatures. We're able to hold together hatred, love, joy, pain, sorrow. The Psalms are wanting to heal us by allowing us to bring that stuff before God. It's amazing that God truly doesn't want you to hide anything from him. He's not saying, you know, if you behave this way, then you can come into my presence. He's saying, bring it all. And what's more, the Psalms for us, you know, in those moments where you do read a Psalm and you've read those Psalms that maybe don't have anything to do with your life, the Psalms are an invitation to us as a, as a church to bear witness to what it means to be a body, a people knit together by God's Spirit. Because there are going to be times where when you read the Psalms, it doesn't fit for you individually, but there are going to be times where you're reading a Psalm on behalf of those around you, on behalf of the world that is suffering under the weight of sorrow, on behalf of a world that is asking the question, how long? And so the Psalms are the way that we carry the sorrows of the world. N.T. Wright talks about that the church should be like their Messiah. The church should be like the one that they follow. Jesus redeems the world by carrying the suffering and sorrow of the world. And the way that we are called to participate with Jesus in doing that, first and foremost, is through our prayers. And the Psalms allow us to begin to carry the sorrows of the world, and they bear witness to the fact that we are not individuals. We are not our own. So the Psalms are a gift to us. They're a way that we participate in the healing that God already has for us. Next, confession and repentance. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Within the wider orbit of what it means to be human, sometimes our sickness of soul or body is from a refusal to heed God's voice, to turn his way. Now, I want to reiterate this because I know, because I'm a pastor, how quickly we intuit bad and simplistic pictures of God. This is not saying that every sickness that you've ever had is because of some some sin that you've committed in your life and that you need to retrace your steps, figure out where you went wrong, apologize, repent. That's not what James is saying here, okay? And it's very important for us to know that when you get the sniffles, it's not, okay, what sin did I commit yesterday and not repent for? That's not what James is saying. But we sometimes keep ourselves unwell in our mind, body, and soul by clinging to sin instead of clinging to Jesus. We tend to think of the ways that we have been sinned against in our culture, the things that have come against us. And the Bible has language for that, but the scriptures are always doing two things at once. They're acknowledging the reality of systems and relationships that are broken, but they're also calling us to hold up a mirror, to look in it and to see that the brokenness often starts with us. When we bring our lives into the light of God's love and truth, we can be healed. And just a couple of examples. First of all, like statistically, so many people struggle with addictions to pornography. The, the pornography industry in the United States is, is a billion dollar industry. But what it begins to do on an individual level is it begins to desensitize our bodies and our emotions towards others. So you could start to see how this begins to affect our relationships, 
how it begins to affect the, the level of intimacy that we can achieve with one another. It begins to affect the way that we see other people. But here's what begins to happen, is that within that, we begin to experience a level of shame. And within that shame, we start to turn inwards on ourselves and we start to say, I, I, can't, I can't bring that into the light. I can't tell anybody about this thing that is going on in my life. And so the spiral starts down, but that is the exact opposite way that Jesus has for us. Jesus is saying, when you find yourself mired in shame, bring it into the light that when you allow it to be named, you allow it to be healed. But when we try to hold on and coddle, these, these things that mire us in shame, that we actually turn away from the one thing that can heal us. And for so many of us, whatever it may be, we hold on, we keep our shame in the corners of the darkness and Jesus has come as the light of the world and everything that is brought into his light can be healed and transformed. First John says, if we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. This is who God is. He is not saying, hey, bring me all of this except for that really messy part. He's saying, I want all of you. And it's even in the midst and the depths of our shame that we can be transformed. And that's on a very individual level. Brian Stevenson talks about this on a communal and a national level. He names both the refusal for the United States to tell the truth about our collective history of enslavement and native genocide and the possibility if we were to confront this hard truth. He says, until we tell the truth, we deny ourselves the opportunity for beauty. Justice can be beautiful. Reconciliation can be beautiful. Repair can be beautiful. It's powerful to actually experience redemption. And we deny ourselves that when we insist on denying our broken past, our ugly past, our racist past, when we insist upon avoiding the truth. Friends, that which cannot be named cannot be healed. But the beauty of Jesus is, is he's saying, bring it all because he has paid for it all. Everything that we can ever do, he has overcome. He has given his life for on the cross. And confession sets us free. Acting like we have it all together, acting like we don't have anything that's going on in the depths of our heart is a way of buffering our lives against God. And God is trying to say, bring it all before me. And so we confess and we find that there's freedom in confession. There's healing in confession. Forgiveness, number three. Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. I think of the amazing witness of the survivors of the Mother Emanuel shooting in Charleston. Days after a white supremacist had murdered nine dear souls after sitting in a Bible study with them for an hour, the church was pronouncing forgiveness over this young man. Grace is so hard and it breaks our categories. Many people who observed the church's forgiveness actually criticized the church. They said they were too quick to forgive this man but yet they pronounce Jesus' forgiveness. Now, a couple of things. If you've ever had anything to forgive, you know there are times where you forgive, but it's not always up and to the right. It's not always linear, right? And so you may express forgiveness, but then you may have one of those experiences that brings you right back into the depths of your own bitterness, your own anger, perhaps righteous anger at what happened. 
And so we do ourselves a disservice when we misunderstand forgiveness. Forgiveness in our hands is not us always saying once and for all that I'll never think poorly about you again. It's not saying that we can uh, guarantee for all of time that we'll never think about those things in that way again. That's not how forgiveness works for us. Forgiveness needs to be done with wisdom. It has a wide variety of manifestations. It does not look the same in every scenario. And if you've been abused, harmed, it does not mean recreating the, the situation before that and so that you can open yourself up to that kind of abuse and harm again. Forgiveness does not mean we don't set healthy boundaries. But within all of that, forgiveness is a command of Jesus not so that we'd be repressed or continually putting ourselves in harm's way. Forgiveness is a way of entrusting ourselves fully to God. And Jesus commands us to do this. And the, the beautiful thing about Jesus is he never commands us to do something that he hasn't done himself. Right? Jesus never says, that's for you guys to do. I'm the Messiah. I'm over here. No, Jesus always goes before us as our king and our servant. And on the cross, as he's being crucified for the sins of the world, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And we step into the miracle of God's mercy when we allow forgiveness to work its way in our hearts. Now, I don't know about you. This may just apply to me. So if it's just me, forgive me. But have you ever had something to forgive and you have been absolutely right? You've been wronged by somebody else and you have been right in your anger. You've been right in your frustration. You ever been in that situation? Now, what I found for me, was there was a time where that situation was actually a means of God's presence, a means of him coming near to me and saying, Ian, I see you. There is a just judge who sees the world as it is, and I see what you're going through. And that was for a time. And then there was a time where that turned where me holding on to my unforgiveness, me holding on to my bitterness, even though I was right, even though I was wronged in this situation, became a means of re-victimizing myself. And I began locked in the, to this narrative, locked into this situation. And so, so often what, what God is wanting to do is he's saying, look, I see you, but my mercy is so good that even when people do things for harm, as God says in Genesis 50, what with Joseph, as he reflects on what his brothers have done to him, he says, what you meant for harm, God takes for good, that God wants to move us forward out of these places where we find ourselves mired in unforgiveness and move us towards mercy. And friends, that is a messy, timely process. God is not in a hurry and you don't need to be either. But I do encourage you not to shut down the possibility of mercy, not to shut down the possibility of forgiveness, even if forgiveness does not mean rewinding to the way that things were before. And again, I think sometimes we have this misconception that forgiveness is like, okay, now I'm just going to open myself up to this person or these people in the same way. And sometimes when people show you who they are, you need to believe them. But also you need to allow for God's mercy to work in your lives. Jesus does this. Paul reflects on this in Romans 5. He says, you see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait for us to, to uh, deserve mercy. 
in order to meet it out. And he calls us to be like him, to be merciful, to be forgiving. But we have to do that in the power of his spirit. All right, forgiveness, that's a hard one. Next, therapy. One scene in Mark chapter five, Jesus meets a man who is so overcome with demons that he lives on the outskirts of town, chained up. Jesus comes to the man and begins to talk to the demons that have intruded upon him. And he asks for their name and they respond that their name is Legion. And in that moment, Jesus casts this powerful force out. Now, hear me what I'm saying. I'm not saying that all of our needs for therapy are evidence of the demonic working in our lives. Not what I'm saying. But what I'm trying to illustrate with this story is that Jesus, in his ability to name that which afflicts us, is able to heal it. And so it's true in our lives. When we're able to name that which afflicts us, the stories that have shaped us, we are able to step into a new narrative, a narrative of healing. Sigmund Freud figured this out. He wrote that when when afflictions are named immediately and permanently, they disappeared when we had succeeded in bringing clearly to light the memory of the event by which it was provoked and arousing its accompanying effect. And when the patient had described that event in the greatest possible detail and had put the effect into words. Maybe you've had this at a physical level. Have you ever been aching for a diagnosis? And there, a doctor came along and was able to say, oh, I see what's going on here. You, you have this condition. And it didn't immediately heal your condition, right? You didn't walk out of there without that physical malady, but you had a new clarity. You were able to say, okay, there's actually an answer to the question that I've been asking. There's an answer to this longing in my bones. Bessel van der Kolk, another doctor who works with traumatized patients, writes that finding words where words were absent before and as a result, being able to share your deepest pain and deepest feelings with another human being, this is one of the most profound experiences we can have. And such resonance in which hitherto unspoken words can be discovered, uttered, and received is fundamental to healing the isolation of trauma, especially if other people in our lives have ignored or silenced us. I love this. Communicating fully is the opposite of being traumatized. Naming the experiences that have shaped us does not automatically make those things go away. But in the power of God's creative economy, words create worlds. And words narrating our experiences and what we felt can be the first step towards healing. And thank God for therapists who are trained in the common grace of our God to be able to to excavate and be able to unpack these things with us and be able to, to wait patiently with us. Thank God for them. It's healing work. And I, I recommend it to you. As a pastor, therapy is a gift. Good therapy. All right, next in the BuzzFeed list, community. James writes in James chapter five, are any of you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. James here envisions the sick receiving prayer from the representative leaders of the church. Again, this is not a guarantee of healing, but it is an acknowledgement that Jesus' presence is ongoing through the life of the community that's, that's expressed in the gathering of local believers. That Jesus is here. 
No less in a way that he was present in the New Testament, no way less than the way he was present in Acts. Jesus is here among us today. And my friend John says that sometimes people find that the most surprising thing, the most surprising person they meet in church is God. And I, I hope that's not true of us. I hope that we have this sense that God has something for us when we gather. But also, just as God wants to meet with us, he also wants us to meet together. That there's something in community that God is doing to heal and unburden us. And have you ever had this experience? This is especially true of those who grew up in Christian culture. Somebody tells you something really hard and you go, oh, I'll pray for you. And then, you know, if we fast forward a couple of days, you didn't pray for them. So can I tell you a little hack, just a little, little interpersonal hack to keep you telling the truth and genuine? Here's what I say. When you come to mind, I will pray for you. Now, I'm a pastor, so I have to call you to mind more often than maybe the average, but it's, it's a way of being honest without over-promising and under-delivering. But we have this way of sort of shutting down conversations that are really hard by saying, I'll pray for you. But here's the thing. What James is saying here is this invitation to pray with others, to bear one another's burdens, is a sacred trust. To be, to be invited into this part of somebody's life is, is to be called into the holy of holies of somebody's life. And so we should be faithful to one another. And don't overpromise. If you don't think you're going to pray for them later, don't say that. Friends, I pray, and I know for so many of you, you've been wounded in Christian community. I know these places can be hard. And I have good news and bad news. First, the bad news. The bad news is that you can only be healed from wounds that are caused by Christian community in Christian community. But the, but the good news is that when Jesus is working, yes, even in the midst of broken people, even in the midst of people that aren't perfect, and if you've come from another church community and you're like, these people have it all figured out, I promise you we do not, starting with me. But what I can promise you is that as we allow Jesus to be present in our midst, that somehow, miraculously, wondrously, he works healing in our midst, and he can do that among us. And we are healed in community. We are healed by God's presence. We are healed by speaking words of life over one another. We are healed in bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another when we're sick of soul, of mind, of body. And so let us be a people who are faithful to do that. Number six, play, wonder, exercise, Sabbath. Think of the most joyful person that you know. Like that person that is always able to find wonder in every situation. They're always able to play. There's like a solidity to them. Like you're just like that person. There's just something going on underneath the surface that's so solid and so strong. Now, when you envision that person, do you envision Jesus being like that person? Is that how you picture Jesus? I think that Jesus, G.K. Chesterton says that Jesus was the most joyful person who ever lived. And I think we miss this. You know, Jesus saw people fully. Like he saw them. It says in some parts that he knows their hearts. And he didn't grow cynical or bitter about them. Like what a gift that is. I mean, how often do we have the experience where you meet somebody and then you kind of get closer to the inside and you're like, yeah, they're not so great. Like Jesus still cultivates this sense of wonder and fascination with people. 
Jesus sees things for how they are and that doesn't cause him to grow cynical or bitter. Or think of like, I don't know, somebody talked about like self-care being being alone and like, you know, just having some time by yourself, you introverts. Jesus at one point in John 6 is so overwhelmed by the crowds that he sends his disciples ahead of him on a boat to the other side of the lake and he wants to just be alone. And as Jesus sends his disciples on, he spends some time alone and then he sort of decides that, oh, I probably should catch up with my disciples now, but he sent his disciples across the lake. And so Jesus' version of going for a walk is literally just walking across water. Jesus knew what it meant to live within the rhythms of grace. Like Jesus is at a wedding and there's the, the wine that is given for the party runs out. And the best thing I love about this story, Jesus turns the water into wine, but he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He just does it. And he's like, hey, go give this cup to that guy. And like, there's a couple of people that kind of know the backstory, what's going on, but they don't know that this water has become wine. And Jesus just has this way of sort of messing with people. Like at one point in John chapter nine, there's a man born blind. And Jesus approaches this man and they start talking about healing. Jesus decides to heal him. He spits on the ground, makes mud and rubs it on his eyes. Now here's what I know. Because there are other stories of healing in the Bible, Jesus did not have to do that. Why Jesus did that on that occasion, I have no idea. But I get this sense, and especially John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples in his gospel, just has the sense of what Jesus loves. And Jesus, I think, was thoroughly thoroughly joyful. And for us, as we talk about healing, do we enter into the rhythms that Jesus has given to us? Rhythms of Sabbath. Jesus talks about that the Sabbath, as he heals on the Sabbath, is made for us. It is made as a gift to show that you are not the product of what you produce. You are not a a human piece of machinery. You are not a cog in a wheel. You are a child of God. And that when you stop producing, you can actually hear that voice of love that is trying to communicate with you at all times. Exercise, you know, again, we're talking about this sort of embodied existence, the endorphins that fire when you're running or, you know, playing a sport. Like, yes, Jesus meets us there. Wonder, do you cultivate a sense of wonder? I'm, I'm almost of the opinion that there's only two ways to live that you can be sort of beaten down by the world and sort of be cynical and bitter and kind of depressed, or you can keep fighting for wonder in a soft heart. And I don't know that there's any other outcome than those two. So how do we cultivate wonder? How do we be a people like Jesus? There's healing in the midst of the way that we embrace these rhythms. And last, thanksgiving. No, this is not cultural appropriation of a Hallmark holiday. You may or may not realize this, but the church has its own way of timekeeping. For our culture, the year begins on January 1st, but in the church calendar, the first day of the year is next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. And today is the last Sunday of the church calendar, a day called the Feast of Christ our King. It is a feast that celebrates the reign of God, sure and certain. It celebrates all the already that Jesus has accomplished. It celebrates the cosmic reign of Jesus and shalom and healing. But then if you know what Advent is about, what is Advent about? It's about longing. It's about waiting. 
It's about the prayer of come Lord, how long? And so we sit right now at the intersection of the already and the not yet. All that Jesus has won and all that will be. And we sit at this intersection and Jesus invites us to pull the future into our present by living in light of what he has done. That because of what Jesus has done, we're not dragging our past with all of its shame, with all of its limited possibility into an uncertain future. We are living in light of God's future in our present right now. And one of the most incredible ways that we do that is by giving thanks by rejoicing, by coming to a table together. Jesus, throughout his ministry, would sit down to the table with people, all sorts of people from all different walks of life. And he was trying in doing that to say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's all the scriptures about God being with the people, God being amongst the people. And Jesus was doing that as he sat down to the table with sinners and tax collectors and even Pharisees. And today, friends, as we wrap up this series on healing, as we move towards Advent, as we sit at the intersection of the already and the not yet, we want to practice what it looks like when God heals the world. And so we have a table, a table that has been prepared for us, a table of gift, a table of joy. And so today, as we come, The practice, the response will simply be, we're going to come to the table and receive from the table. Our our children are going to join us in such a beautiful expression of God's kingdom. And then we're just going to open up the space. The service will conclude. And we're going to sit and have some food together for a little while. And friends, I want to say, if you're like, the last thing I wanted to do here today was talk to another soul, and I'm not feeling up to that, The service will conclude and there is an exit. You can walk right out. No apologies. Happy Thanksgiving. Lord bless and keep you. But let's embody this joy that God has for us today. I want to read from the prophet Joel as he writes of this sure and certain future, this reality that we will be healed, that time doesn't heal all wounds, but eternity will. Joel 2, the Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful he sends you abundant showers both autumn and spring rains as before the threshing floors will be filled with grain the vats will overflow with new wine and oil I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten You will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you never again will my people be shamed Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Friends, if you've been living in the midst of locust years, years where it seems like all that happens is withering and dying, God is saying to you that there is a new day dawning. 
that he will restore those years that have been lost and broken, that he will bring to fullness and completion all that he has won for us because he is faithful. He's faithful to heal, faithful to forgive, faithful in mercy. And we come to this table expectant, not because we can demand anything of God, but because that's who our God is. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world that as often as we eat, as often as we drink, we declare his life, death, and resurrection until he comes again. What joy, what healing awaits. Friends, as we come to this table today, I invite you just to pray, come Holy Spirit. God, would you confirm these words that you have healing for me? We come to this table in celebration and rejoicing. Okay, so the next couple of minutes, we've got a lot of things going on here. Uh, we've got kids in the back that are going to join their families. Friends, I know some of you have sort of uh, kind of family markers around communion table. If that's you, just, just come eat, you know, from this table. That's okay. The table is open to all, but I also understand that we sometimes want to highlight these markers. And so I just want to make sure that that's said. Also... You're going to come and receive from the table, and then after you do that, there are little plates here, and then there's literally a feast. And this is like, in, in the best way that we can as a little church plant, just an embodiment of God's good grace, of his abundance, of his kindness. And so we want to just live into that right now as we receive the forgiveness of our God. And we have gluten-free crackers. I think that's it. All right. So I'm going to invite you to come. Uh, let's see. Mal, are you going to? All right. Hey, hey, Mal. Uh, I was going to show you it. All right. Yes, beautiful. All right. This bread is, uh, is very, very leavened. So uh, twist hard. All right, friends. Maybe come to the table. Come to taste the grace of our God. Let's rejoice together in our King. So come... Take from the table and then go to the...